Hi everybody, welcome to Lectures on Lacan, a podcast dedicated to clear, coherent, and accessible readings of key texts in Lacanian psychoanalysis. I'm your host, Samuel McCormick, Professor of Communication Studies and Psychoanalysis at San Francisco State University. Hope you enjoy today's episode, and if you do, be sure to like and follow us on Substack, Instagram, and all the usual places. You know what I love about this group? Is there a connection between this negative fee and phallic jouissance? Hold on, let me get this chat up again. Let's see. Is there a connection between this negative fee and phallic jouissance or feminine jouissance? Um, yes, there is. Um, because this negative fee business is um, is the structuring element for the symbolic order, which is where phallic jouissance um, involves itself. So it's this negative fee here is um, in in some places even Lacan will mess around and transform this into the phallic signifier, which is another term that he comes up with. Um, not the imaginary phallus, but the phallic signifier. Um, but just because it has the word phallic in it, um, the main thing to remember is um, Bruce Fink does a good job with this, I think, is um, that remember that phallus is of the same etymological origin as failure and fallibility. And that's what the phallus is designed to indicate. It's to indicate incompletion, inadequacy, something that you um, uh, struggle with. It's a fault, if you will. And think fault line here too. These are all etymological origins of the word phallus. And that's what we know about phallic jouissance, is that it is a failed jouissance. It is a faulted jouissance um i would hold that in mind um but yeah the 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 symbolic structure uh that is constituted by the paternal function which results in this negative fee is the world in which phallic jouissance will take root so the answer is yes what's interesting about this question and the reason why I appreciate it so much is that it reminds me of where we are. And it reminds me that what we're really doing here and what Seminar 10 invites us to do <clears throat> is to really dig deep into the conceptual foundations of Lacanian psychoanalysis. That's what we're doing here. And that's an interesting place to be. The reason why I want us to be at this place is because once you arrive at the foundations, you can look up and see all the other pieces and how they work. And that's what this question really reminds me of, is that phallic jouissance is something that is of interest to a lot of you, especially as it relates to the other jouissance, feminine jouissance, so to speak, from Seminar 20. Here, where we find ourselves now with this negative fee is one of the great foundations for Lacan's phallic thought. There are essays in Ecree 2 that you should check out as well. Signification of the phallus, subversion of the subject, these are all great ones. 
Um, but this seminar is really terrific for this stuff. And it goes back even further. This is like the third or fourth year in a row that Lacan has been making good use of the phallus. But just remember, the key thing here is faulted. And this gets us back to the question that we paused on. Kimes was a good one about loss versus lost. Is it that we had uteromorphic bliss and then it was taken from us? Or is it something else? Lacan's answer is it's something else. Here's how we get there. So the other big other, the symbolic that we started talking about tonight, what we know about this is that it precedes us. It's another word for society, language, order, law. It precedes the self. Again, this is what Heidegger meant by thrownness. We're thrown into a world not of our own design. Other people designed it for us. They carved out places for us in law and language and subjectivity and asked us to occupy it. They drug us into this world. Don't think about where they drug us out of or where they drug us from. Think about what we got drug into. This dragging into society is the process known as subjectivization. And it always results in a split subject. Split between embodiment and language. The enunciating subject and the grammatical subject. The bio-animal material body that experiences need and cold and hunger. And the sociolinguistic body that can now exist at the level of a name on an envelope or on a screen in our cases here. So the split subjectivity that Lacan introduces us to, it has these two fundamental elements. There's a biomaterial component that came with us when we entered the symbolic. And there's a large part of that bodily environment that receives representation. But think about how many body parts are in your no-no zone. The no-no zone that as a child you were told were your private parts, which were parts you weren't supposed to talk about, parts that the symbolic didn't have a lot of available appropriate terms for discussing. This is part of what Lacan is getting at when he talks about objet, this little a. This little a, is whatever gets cut out and off of the body in this process of, subjective, of subjectivation and gets thrown to the side into your no-no zone. Oh, we don't talk about that. We don't do that here. Don't touch yourself there. Don't think about this. Don't deal with that. We don't make those noises, et cetera, et cetera. You should be embarrassed when you fart and burp and all this kind of, all the bodily mechanisms and parts that society deems inappropriate are rejected from the symbolic. And they become little a's. Little a is what is cut out of the symbolic. It is the basis for the real. The real did not precede the symbolic. Conceptually speaking, the real is an effect structure of the symbolic. 
It's whatever of biomaterial existence the symbolic cannot account for, and thus places under erasure. Everything in your no-no zone, swimsuit zone, genitals, all this kind of stuff that we don't talk about, that's all shit that gets pushed into the real. The reason why Lacan, as Carolina pointed out last time, is attaching the real to objet A, to this little a, is because it's that pound of flesh, that body part that gets ejected from the process of subjectivation. The impulsive side of us, the embodied side of us. <clears throat> we'll come to that in a second. The point I want to get at here is that when you are drug into the symbolic, that is effectively a prohibitive process. The name and know of the father is a prohibition that says, and you can't live as though this world doesn't exist anymore. <clears throat> when you're drug into the world of the symbolic, what may have been experienced as a here and now of the all in a process of becoming is now transformed into a before and after. The here and now is now subject to a logic of before and after. And the before can only be figured and thought and imagined retroactively because it's only in the after we've been introduced to the symbolic that we have the terms to experience anything like a memory or knowledge of this supposed presupposed a bioanimal existence. Now, I bring this up <clears throat> because what I want to suggest is that one of the basic experiences that we have is the experience of a lack of wholeness. So I'm trying to get back at that question we ended with before the break from Kaim about what are we doing here with loss, <clears throat> which of course was started by Cody talking about the lost object. And it's all right on point here with little a. I want to try, as always, to be as grounded and clear as possible as this. It's not that we were once whole and that we have since lost this. It's not that we were living a blissful life and then the symbolic deprived us of that. But that we can only access wholeness at a loss in the experience of lack. That's the important part here. It's not that wholeness was once had and is now lost. It's that the only way we have of accessing it is in this symbolic sphere in which we always live lives of loss, of lack. We are always at a loss, if you will, when imagining what it might be like to be whole. The problem is we always want to add the word again to the fantasy of wholeness. So you want to go out into the wild and get your head right. You're going to go to some hot springs. You're going to immerse yourself in the uteromorphic sulfuric space of a 102 degree groundswell of water. You're going to put hot mud on your body. You're doing the whole thing. Come on, man, that shit is great. You're going to get back to nature. You're going to be one with nature. 
You see, we have all these uteromorphic bubble-like experiences that we pursue. I have a friend who likes to get buried in cedar mulch chips. He thinks that shit is just lit. It's like tingly and hot. He just loves it. Cooks his ass in mulch chips on a regular basis. Other people like bathtubs. Some people like to swim. Others like to go out into the wild, as we've discussed tonight. The problem is, is that that pursuit of wholeness, we know where it starts. It starts from the experience of feeling unholy, incomplete, lacking. It's because we're lacking that we pursue completion, wholeness. The problem is, is that we think that the experience of lack is the result of having something taken from us. That's not it. It's not that the path we were once on was taken from us. It's that the path we were once on now has forked. And from now on, you will have always made a choice and you have to continually make the choice. The split subject must always decide which part of self is gonna be in the driver's seat. The embodied, impulsive, libidinal part known as the enunciating subject or the sociolinguistified, subjectified, symbolified, signified, linguistified part of the self known as the grammatical subject. In this split subject, we also know, however, that there is always a third element. Where two or more have gathered, you will always have a third. In fact, there's no such thing as two or more. It's always two and more. The reason why it's always two and more is because there must be a third element, a gap, an irreducible minimum distance between those two entities that allows them to remain distinct, two entities. If that gap weren't there, if that space weren't there, they would become one. This is the horror of anxiety. Somebody fucking ingests you. You are drawn in, enveloped, consumed by another's desire. Fuck you and your desire. You're going to feed mine. That's a horrifying place to be. One of the examples that I've mentioned before that's worth noting here again is Lacan has the jaws of the maternal function likened to that of a crocodile or an alligator. And the child is this little bird, if you will, sitting in the mouth. And at any moment, those jaws can clamp down. The paternal function, the phallic signifier, if you will, Lacan refers to it almost like a rolling pin that is effectively shoved into the jaws of the maternal function in order to keep them from closing. So here's the phallus, here are the jaws, the phallus is put in there, and now the jaws can't close because there is an irreducible distance that the phallic signifier introduces and maintains. Without that, the jaws could snap closed, but because we have it here, 
lodged in the back of mommy's mouth, mind you. The phallus is able to keep the jaws open and to keep them from smashing down and consuming the baby bird. Okay, what this means then, as you heard me say earlier, is that to study psychoanalysis, according to Lacan, and this really radical function of lack that he says on 131 is basically like the big moment for him. In other words, anxiety introduces us with the accent of utmost communicability to a function that is for our field radical, the function of lack. Remember this on page 131. In order to study lack, you have to study the term or the sign that Lacan uses to symbolize it, this little a. Little a is the symbol for a lack. This, though, little a is not an object. Lack is not an object. Open your books to page 214 and 215, and you'll see him trying to work this out. It is not an easy thought, but it's one that he is dedicated to. The last full paragraph that begins, our vocabulary has endorsed on page 214. Note this line just above it. Look at how he defines A. It's the object of objects. He's not fucking around. He's trying to get at the origin of objecthood. Our vocabulary has endorsed for this object, this A, this object of objects, the term objectality insofar as it stands in contrast to the term objectivity. To encapsulate this contrast in some brief formulas, we shall say that objectivity is the ultimate term in Western scientific thought. The correlate to pure reason, which at the end of the day is translated into, is summed up by, is spelt out in a logical formalism. If you've been following my teaching over the last five or six years, which of course everybody on this call certainly has been doing, you know that objectality is something else. To bring it out in its vital point and forge a formula that balances up with the previous one, here's the key point, everybody. I will say that objectality is the correlate to the pathos of the cut. Now, this cut is not an object. It's a gap in which an object may have been there. Imaginary phallus, is that an object? What kind of object is that? It's an imaginary object in a dual relation that's been placed under erasure or at least denied. Objectality, what Lacan is doing, is about the pathos of the cut. And look at the top of page 215. <clears throat> Actually, start at the bottom of 214. It just helps. Even Kant, especially Kant, I will say, remains steeped in causality. Remember, the cut is the cause for Lacan. Remains suspended from the justification that so far no a priori has ever managed to reduce of this function, which is essential to the whole mechanism of the lived experience of our mental life, the function of cause. The difference between objectality and objectivity, 
is that objectivity deals with the world of objects after the word has engendered them. Objectality deals with the opening moment and utterance of the world. If it's the world of words that creates the worlds of things, objectality studies the origin of the world of words. And the first word, you've heard me say it, no matter what it literally was for you, its function was that of the no, of prohibition. The world of words engenders the world of things, of objects. That's where modern science is hanging out, in the world of things. Lacan goes back to the world of words, linguistics, communication. And now he's going back even further to the first word, which as you now know, was the word N-O, no. The function of that word was prohibitive. And the effect of that prohibition was lack. The reason why I say that is that after the name or the no of the father has been uttered, you, because you're neurotic, like me, can no longer live life as though it hasn't happened. There's no further living of life without prohibition. And what that does then is it introduces the split that we've been talking about at length. And in order to have that split, you have to have a gap or a cut between the two entities, one part of self and the other. That is where cause comes in. The cause of the world of things is the world of words. The cause of the world of words is the cut. That's where Lacan is with this material. And now what we want to do is figure out the nature of this cut and its byproduct. You've seen this before. If you want to see this rendered in one of our handy dandy formulas, check it out, y'all. Here we are again with our handy black screen. You've seen this before. Here's desire. And we know that desire is always pointed towards stuff, which we'll just represent here as X. This is the world of objects. What we know though, is that there's a big difference between the object of desire and its cause. The reason why you want something is because you don't have it. I can't emphasize this enough, and I hope at this point that you're tired of hearing it from me. This is what you want, and we all have this. 
if we're lucky. This is why we want. We want it because we don't have it. The cause of our desire is our lack of the thing that we experience as missing. We could even take this a step further and get a little playful here. What we fundamentally desire, or what is a desire for recognition? We want to be seen by others as appealing, as desirable, as acceptable. That's why the math theme for fantasy is a split subject, somebody who feels inadequate most of the time, living their life in relation to whatever they think other people might want. Don't get confused. Here's another use of the little a that precedes the one we're working with now. This is fantasy, a desire to be recognized as likable, as effective, whatever the case may be. This, however, is not what interests Lacan. All this shit over here is boring for him. We all know this about desire. More interesting to Lacan is why we desire recognition. And once you start pushing back into the field of what he calls objectality, into the field of the cause, we discover something different. Not the desire for recognition, but a recognition of how desire works. Not the desire for recognition, but a recognition of desire. Some people think that desire, the theory of desire that Lacan puts forth is his greatest contribution to psychoanalysis. I personally don't feel that way, but this is what they mean. This is why they think it's such a great contribution because it shifts the question of desire away from the object of desire and back towards the cause of desire, which in this case is lack. We've talked about this a bunch. For our purposes, right now, dealing with anxiety, so to speak, it's this. This little A, which is a symbol of lack, an algebraic sign, and little more, is what we're working on. Let's take a second for a couple of quick questions before we take the next move and start talking about body parts. Where are y'all sitting with this? It's funny, I, I guess I have a question about the paternal function despite us, I feel like talking about it uh, on repeat. Um, it's, the key, it's the key, so don't even trip. If you've got a yeah, question, yeah. everybody else does too. Yeah, so I was, I was talking to um, a Lacanian analyst and he was talking about this patient who he has and he was saying that um, the patient's father, so the patient's like 17, patient's father uh, is just constantly castrating him, just constant 
ex excessive paternal function. No, 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 no. And in my opinion, I think it's completely destroyed his ability to desire. Um, which is interesting because his mother is doing what we've been talking about as well, which is this overwhelming, too close, too proximate, um, de devouring, right? Essentially. So yeah, I don't know what you have to say about that. Can the pat uh, paternal function also function as a uh, function in the way that it creates anxiety in the subject? Yes. Yes, it can. All right. Remember that when I have written the name of the father, I've always made it also the no of the father, right? And usually when I write this, the punctuation that I offer after the no is a period. There are, unfortunately, lots and lots and lots of primary caregivers who exercise the paternal function with an exclamation mark instead of a period. This is the no that is not kept 300. Cool, calm, collected, consistent, add your C's. We could make this a 600. That key thing though was calm, consistent, and cool. No, that's not how we do this. No, we've talked about this now. We've talked about this. You know that the way that we use the bathroom is we go in and we knock on the door first. We don't just come running in. And we, we try and aim for the toilet. We don't aim for the walls. Like we're trying to like, act, you know, we've been over this. That is a paternal function well delivered. Oh my God, don't do that. No, 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 no. That's not. The former would not result in anxiety. The latter will but it's not all that can happen. This 17-year-old patient who has a dad who is just as smothering as the mom, but in a very prohibitive, constraining way, what can very likely happen there is perversion. One of the ways that you get a pervert is you have the name of the father pronounced not impassively, but at the level of jouissance, with enjoyment, with ferocity, with intensity, affective intensity is the great word here. If the no or prohibition occurs with an extreme affective intensity, like in other words, if it always has an exclamation point at the end or the threat of violence attached to it, if you piss on the wall one more time, I'm going to cut your dick off. I'm going to hit you so hard, you won't, you're going to piss your pants. I mean, parents say this kind of shit to kids. They absolutely say this kind of shit, and they do these types of things to kids. A lot of the guys in this men's group that I was mentioning to you, the horror stories that these men have about growing up, tied up with extension cords, beaten with coat hangers, beaten and then having an addict's parent go take a break to smoke more crack and tell the kid, don't fucking move, I'm not done beating you, and then coming back and beating them some more. 
the horrors, all of you in clinical work, you know this way too well, unfortunately. This shit is real, and I do mean that. The know, though, that comes with a threat of violence, whether that threat is acted upon or not. We talked about this a couple sessions ago, but what happens here is that the law, which is what the no as prohibition effectively enunciates, the law here gets confused with the lawgiver. A good law is a law that can endure a change of power. A bad law, so to speak, is one that only is effective insofar as the lawgiver is there to back it up with the threat of violence. So the example that we had a couple of weeks ago, I think, was of the American Wild West movie, where the hero comes in out of the desert, the town is lawless, he cleans up the town. But at the end of the film, the exact same thing always occurs. The lawgiver leaves. One of the most stereotypical parts of the American Western film is the hero riding off into the sunset. That is the lawgiver having cleaned up the town, leaving it. What is left behind? What is left behind is the law. The town can now take care of itself without the barrel of the gun of the lawgiver there to back it up. In the case of the neurotic, the no that is pronounced with a period at the end, coolly, calmly, collectively, consistently, is gradually introjected and internalized. And eventually, you'll have the law of the primary caregiver in your brain. And when you start thinking about doing something like pissing on the wall, you'll think otherwise. The job of the superego is to show up and censor that action. Sometimes sadistically, by the way, almost always sadistically, unfortunately. But that's a neurotic subject at work. The pervert, though, is somebody who learned that the authority of the no is only binding insofar as it has a threat of violence attached to it, of bodily harm, of extreme affective intensity at the level of the lawgiver bearing down violently and at the level of the law bearer receiving said violence. Now here's the deal. The two basic clinical substructures of perversion are sadism and masochism, which exercise themselves in an effort to get an amplified, intensified law pronounced. Weirdly enough, the law that is screamed at the child day in and day out never really takes hold. The only thing that takes hold is a relationship with the law that is premised on affective intensity. That's what takes hold. What takes hold is not the law, but a feeling that law is only authoritative insofar as it's bound up with jouissance. And that, let's face it, that's the last thing you want in a judge or a cop 
pick your end of the of the court system of the criminal law system you don't want a cop that is like man it's my lucky day i got this new taser and i can't wait to fucking use it on somebody let's just hope there are minoritized subjectivities so i can get away with this that's like terrifying that's fucking terrifying that's why there's so many horrifying thrillers psychological and otherwise where the cop is kind of twisted and mean that's some scary shit because the police have a monopolization on the legitimate use of force and now you've got somebody who uses it for their own benefit for their own jouissance they don't just look i mean fuck look at the rodney king video from the 90s look at that shit rodney king is down they're dancing around him, beating the shit out of him, taking turns, hitting him with sticks. He's down. He don't need to be hit no more. Flash forward to police brutality again. One of the classic symptoms of this is a cop with a knee on the back of somebody's neck and a smile on his face. He's enjoying this. That's the last thing you want in a cop. Someone for whom the pronouncement of the law is bound up with their own enjoyment same with a judge you want a judge who's going to pass a verdict and say i hereby declare blah 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 without a grin without a snarl the scary judge is the one who says if i had my druthers i'd take you out back and hang you myself but I am bound by the law. So at the very least, I'm sentencing you to a maximum sentence of blah, blah, blah. And you have this kind of judge and the camera zooms in for an extreme close-up, and you can see a little bit of spittle on the judge's lip as they bang that gavel. The gavel is a good example of this. A judge that operationalizes the no period can hit the gavel once or twice. A judge who embodies the sadistic, perverse relationship to the law is the one depicted as taking that gavel and smacking it so much so that the pad that the gavel hits starts jumping up and down, maybe even the head of the gavel breaks off. So that's another result that can come of this, Cody. A 17-year-old who has a dad constantly screaming no at him that kid would be lucky to get out of there with anxiety. A more likely outcome, if it's, I don't know how bad it is, but if it's as intense as this guy's saying, would be clinical structure of perversion. Now, I don't know the relationship to the mother, but what could come of this is a kid who, as pervert, thinks that he can go ahead and give it to mommy. He deserves to be her bad little boy to be the object of her jouissance that brings her enjoyment. He receives daddy's enjoyment at the level of the no exclamation point, And he in turn passes that on to mommy by being her symbolic dildo. That is one way that we see the pervert operating too. The pervert gets off on producing anxiety in others, but what they tell themselves is, I'm just giving the other pleasure not even pleasure, enjoyment. I'm there to get them off. The pervert is somebody who says, I want you to just tie me to the bed 
put a bag over my head and fuck me. Turn me into your dildo. That's a perverse move. So there are all kinds of permutations that can come of this. The most important one for Lacan would be a perverse relationship to the law, where the law constantly needs amplification because it never took root in a, quote, normal average way. Because it always was bound up with the, with the vociferousness of the lawgiver, and the jouissance of the lawgiver, those two got like those two get confused. The pervert has confused the jouissance of the lawgiver for the rationality of the law. So, without further case notes, I, I couldn't say more. I, I don't know if I should be saying anything now, anyway. But I think it's great that you're actually talking with a practicing Lacanian. You get some good use out of that for sure. What else is out there? I always want these sessions to be as much a response to you as they are a trotting out of what I read as um, key points in the Lacan text. Coming back to temporality and the functional crime, because you we caught it a few different ways. Like so, even going back to the um, uh, the lower left, the signifier of the big other, the the. It's like the difference between the uh, the other as the locus, the treasure trove uh, as the signifiers, and then the symbol, the signifier that is being offered right now in this moment at this for this representation. I mean, there's all these sort of punctuations of time that happen, you know, and then the cleft between the 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 having the, the before versus the after versus the you know the the here and now thing. So it keeps. I don't know. Again, I don't have like a cohesive question, but it just keeps. Feeling like time is like this slippery thing that that pulls it all together because we talked we talked about it directly in the retro version of the like okay we, we figure out the chain after the fact but is time I guess I'm putting it in the symbolic but I feel like it also has its own discrete function that maybe is like its own fourth register if we should allow that yeah um, time is one of the key conceptual backbones of Lacanian thought. And the reason why I say that is because he has a twofold theory of time. And he borrows some of this from Freud. Um, but he does something more with it. So Lacan always has um, a chronological sense of time is one part. Time as uh, unfolding the way music does, one note after the other. Like an entire composition couldn't happen all at once. It would just sound like... Ah. The music has to unfold the way a melody does, one note at a time. That chronological, dare I say, progressive unfolding of time, A to B to C to D, that linear chronological assessment of time is how, according to Lacan, language unfolds. Speech, when spoken, unfolds like a melody, one word at a time. But it's only at the end of the utterance at the end of the sentence where the punctuation mark is that we can look back retrospectively and understand the meaning of what was said. So here it is. Speech unfolds linearly in time for Lacan, diachronically. 
Meaning, however, is retroactive. It's synchronic. Meaning is always backward looking. Which is why the symbol of wisdom in the West is typically an owl. Not because owls can turn their heads all the way around, but because they only come out at dusk. At the end of the day, when all the day's deeds are done, the owl of Minerva takes flight. Wisdom is hindsight, just like vision is 2020 when looking back. So let's take an example really quick just to capture these two, these two threads of time, which you may have heard before. Here it is unfolding in time, but notice how it's not until the end of the sentence that we understand anything. Jack and Jill, at a very young age, were exposed to. Now, until I fill in the blank, until I tell you what they were exposed to, you don't really know anything about Jack or Jill. Jack and Jill, at a very young age, were exposed to another language. Okay, now we can look back and say, oh, okay, Jack and Jill must have been like some cultured people, or maybe they just happened to live in Europe, or maybe they blah, 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 you know. Jack and Jill at a very young age were exposed to their uncle's genitals. Okay, now we have a different understanding of Jack and Jill. Lacan's point is, life has to be lived forward, but it can only be understood backward. Meaning is retroactive, but living is continuous. And if you have ears to hear, you know that I'm also here quoting Soren Kierkegaard. One of the basic definitions of existentialism is the dilemma associated with the fact that life can only be lived forward and understood backward. So there are several figures in the Western tradition that have really robust theories of time. All of them include theories of retroactivity. Lacan is one of them. Second only, I would argue, to Walter Benjamin. Benjamin actually made a thing of retroactive theories of time. <clears throat> Some of you have read my stuff on this. I'm not going to go into it much, but it's worth looking at. And it's worth holding in mind because, again, time is one of the conceptual backbones of what Lacan is doing. And just remember, speech unfolds linearly according to the Greek notion of chronos, but meaning is retroactive. It's not chronos, but kairos. It's more about the moment, moment of punctuation. I could go on and on about this as I have in other lectures, but I think it's worth bearing in mind here because it does get after this notion of um, the lost object. And it does get into this notion on page 174 and 175 uh, with this table where big A and big S are at the top. And Lacan has rather dangerously, I would argue, written jouissance next to that. The way to understand that jouissance is that it's a retroactive, retrospective assignment of jouissance. It's a pre-linguistic jouissance. You might even call it like a J1 or something like that. It's not technically jouissance, 
that the subject of pure need experiences, because jouissance is an effect of symbolic integration, of subjectivation. Jouissance doesn't fit there, which is why Lacan elsewhere in the development of that table refers to this as a kind of X factor. We'll come to it in a second, but I just want to, I want you to know that this question of time is deeply relevant to what he's doing here. The experience of being at a loss is very much bound up with retrospection. And it is the key, I think, to understanding the difference between a lost object and the experience of loss. I think we'll be able to make some heads um, and tails of this, if not this time, then in a couple of weeks. Um, how much do you want to talk about the fact that Lacan assigns this lost or cut off part as a body part? This starts on page 160, where he says that after the ordeal of the signifierization of the subject, after the ordeal of the symbolic, little a is what's left. A real leftover, an irreducible leftover, he says, on 160 and 161. This is what Carolina had us on to last time. This is also, you'll note on page 160, where Lacan starts developing this table. And you can see on 161, there's that X factor. He has not yet inserted jouissance there. Because this is a mythical, presupposed, retroactively configured alignment. In many ways, that's what that horizontal line indicates. A presuppositional line. Existence only occurs below that line. Everything above it is in the field of presuppositionality. You can see this here as well on 161. To connote the three stages of the operation of division, we shall say that here at the start there is an X that we can only name retroactively, which is properly speaking the inroad to the other. Blah, 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 blah. This is all about the subject of pure need. That's what that capital S is there. So if you wanted to like trace this thing out, here's how you do it. Just a moment. Okay, so if you have this table here in the middle, this is the subject of pure need that we've discussed. Here is the whole big other as treasure trove, which we've also discussed. Here's this little a that we've been working so hard on. Here's the split subject, which we've also discussed. And here's the barred other. The X here that would later become jouissance for Lacan is mythical. 
presupposed. A priori, if you will. At this other level here, we have anxiety. And down here we have desire. The first thing to understand about this is the procedure that Lacan suggests. There's a, a whole subject of pure need that is driven into the symbolic. And what is produced in this process are these two entities. So this is very much what we talked about as the subject of pure need, has to address big other, and one of the things that comes of this is a split subject, but something also escapes leading up to desire. And here's that little a. So this is the same modeling that we've seen. It's just rendered a little bit differently in order for Lacan to get these three tiers. So don't think that he's doing something totally different with this table. Cody's point that he wants to talk about is anxiety as this median, not mediating, but median between desire and what Lacan is eventually going to call jouissance. Here, this kind of X factor on page 161. What I think is worth noting is that this little a that is produced as a leftover, as a spin-out product of the subject of pure needs integration and splitting in and by the symbolic is something real. It is the scrap of embodiment that the big other cannot process. An irreducible scrap of embodiment. You can think of this on 161, about 10 lines down. This is the A. It's an irreducible aspect of the subject. It's what remains of the irreducible in the complete operation of the subject's advent in the locus of the other. And it is from this that it will derive its function. Little a will derive its function as what represents the S in its irreducible real. This is, in other words, at the level of the severed, cut, removed, torn out body part. What Lacan on 215 is going to call a corporal morsel, a portion of our flesh, a piece of our body. Little a here is something real. It's a real piece of flesh. It's the part of us as embodied beings that the big other just doesn't have a word for. That's the great definition of little a that we get in seminar 10. It starts to take on the properties of the real for just this reason. Now blast forward to that page I just mentioned, 215, and notice the move Lacan makes here. Here again, we see, just after we were reading about objectality in the business, that little a on 215 is something irreducible, portion of our flesh that is snagged in the formal machine, 
Here's that corporal morsel that's torn from us. Blah, 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 blah. Now scroll down here to this paragraph that begins this bodily portion of ourselves on 215. Check this out. Note the movie makes. This bodily portion of ourselves is essentially and functionally partial. It should be remembered that this portion is a body and that we are objectal, which means that we are only objects of desire as bodies. This is a crucial point to bear in mind because calling upon something else, calling upon some substitute or other is one of the fields that creates denigation. Desire, here's the key point, always remains in the last instance, the desire of a body. Desire for the other's body and nothing but the desire for this body. And then he gives us some examples. I want your heart. Language here, he says, betrays the truth. What I want from you is not just your love. I want the organ that pumps blood through your body. I want your body part. And then in the next paragraph on 216, he then is back to circumcision and the foreskin. This is all about locating little a in a body part that has been rendered as waste, leftover, refuse, worthless. It's a wonder to me, given some of the recent videos I've been watching on Netflix, why he wouldn't invoke the clitoris more at this point. Why so much time spent on the foreskin? Wouldn't the clit be this part of human anatomy that has been cast out, placed under erasure and the like? In fact, when exactly, when exactly did scientists begin to map anatomically the full extent of the clitoris? We didn't know shit about this thing for a very long time. And now we finally have an anatomical map of just how extensive and elaborate this aspect of human anatomy is. Now think about the constant subordination of female anatomical organism, orgasm, to male anatomical organism, orgasm. If ever there was a part of the body that has been rendered as refuse, remained or cast off, shoved aside, in other words, made into a little a, it would be utterly the parts of woman's anatomical body. And yet Lacan doesn't spend much time with that. Thankfully, though, we have Netflix. You can find the shows I'm mentioning. They're quite popular right now. But it would be a good example of how that little a, societally speaking, is indeed always a body part that has been cast out, the same way that the foreskin is cast out. Now let's think about this table really quick. How do you feel about this thing? I'm prepared to take more steps, but I don't want to move too fast with this if there's more you want to talk about at this level.
by all means. I'm just erasing this to be clear. Okay, then let's go over the parts one more time. Here's the subject of pure need. This is that little diamond, or I'm sorry, that little triangle that we messed with in the past. Let's put a little slash here so you know that this is the subject of pure need. Um, it's wholly embodied. Okay, I think we can say that. This is a wholly embodied being. And then it encounters and is forced to filter itself through the big other. Society, law, order, language, the symbolic. It draws this wholly embodied being into what Lacan on 219 calls a signifying dialectic. In this signifying dialectic, something is separated off, sacrificed, the pound of flesh. That is this. This is what's sacrificed or forfeited in that moment. And we see this, pages 160, 161, up through 219. You can check it out. Little a here designates this pound of flesh that's been cut off as an irreducible remainder of the fully embodied subject of pure need, a remainder that occurs through the ordeal of castration, alienation, the division of the subject in and by the symbolic. Now we can start to see why Lacan uses the word castration. Castration, literally the cutting off of certain body parts to be cast aside. My great grandfather used to take a cat, put its head in a cowboy boot, pull a pen knife out, cut its testicles off and just throw them to the dogs and then take the cat's head out of the boot and turn it back loose. It's like a 20 second operation. But those nuts of the cat were worthless, rendered little more than dog food, subject only to the desire of the candidate, if you can believe that has one. This is again why Lacan associates little a with the real on pages 160 to 61. It's what remains of the subject of pure need after the advent of split subjectivity in and by the symbolic. It's an irreducible real, which I think is a great way to understand this. And again, it's here in seminar 10 that Lacan is really making this turn towards understanding little a as an irreducible real. Now, when he says it's irreducible, he means that whatever little a symbolizes, if you will, it's something that resists signifierization, Lacan says. It symbolizes what's lost in, on, and by the symbolic. And again, I'm not just making this shit up. Flip to page 174, where we see the latest and greatest iteration of this table. The first part is the part that Cody pointed us to about the median function of anxiety. What we're working on now, prior to getting to that median point, is the last paragraph 
on page 174. It may be as far as we can get at present, but it is definitely worth landing upon. What does this mean? To sketch out the translation of what I am designating, I might suggest that A comes to assume the function of the metaphor of the subject of jouissance. That use subject of jouissance is a stretch for Lacan. That's him wanting to replace that mythical retroactive X factor with a term that he thinks his audience is gonna like. This would only be right if little a were deemed equivalent to a signifier. It is not. So we know it's not an object like other objects, and he's also gonna tell us that it's a sign, but also not a signifier. Now, the little a is precisely what resists any assimilation to the function of a signifier. And this indeed is why it symbolizes that which in the sphere of the signifier always presents itself as lost as what gets lost in signifierization. Now it is precisely this waste product, this scrap, which resists signifierization, that comes to find itself constituting the foundation of the desiring subject as such. Not the subject of jouissance now, but the subject on the path of his search, which is not a search for his jouissance. In wanting to bring this jouissance into the locus of the other, as the locus of the signifier. However, the subject precipitates himself, anticipating himself as a desiring subject. So this little scrap represented by A is the cause, is the opening or the lack or the gap that gives desire its start. It's the origin of desire. Now the question becomes, how are we to understand this place of anxiety in our equation here? I'm not sure that we're gonna be able to solve this one tonight, but I'm absolutely certain that what we have in this table on 174 can be adapted from the graph of desire and stretched in some pretty interesting directions. If I were to add one more twist to this, a twist that will allow us to end tonight on a rather interesting note, and one, of course, all the more interesting because I think Lacan would pretty thoroughly disagree with it. Here's how I would draw this thing. There's a kind of circular logic here. So if Lacan wants this X to be jouissance, a kind of mythical retroactive jouissance, we can call it a kind of J1, if you will, or maybe a J0. We can put all of our terms up here on this arrow and suggest that this is basically the arc of a subject in motion. Here we have somebody operating at the level of need. Demand is coming up here. Here we have desire and fantasy, hence desire being at the bottom. And I'm putting fantasy here because we know that the two basic elements of fantasy are now up 
and on display for us here. Somewhere along the way, though, we have this old term, signifier of lack in the other, that when pointed at us, provokes anxiety. Hence, anxiety as the next step past desire. What I'd like to end by suggesting is that we are indeed, contrary to what Lacan suggests, looking at a subject here on the pathway to jouissance. And I want to end tonight by telling you what I think he means by this. In the final pages of his essay on the subversion of the subject, Lacan has a great quote. It's in a Cree around page 700. Castration means that jouissance has to be refused in order to be attained on the inverse scale of the law of desire. That is what I think is being mapped out here. This original retroactive mythical jouissance, if we really want to play this out in ways that I think are a little conceptually sloppy but are effective for getting the point across, must be renounced and refused in order to be regained. I don't like the word regained for reasons we've discussed. I like gained differently. This though, remember, is retrospective. Mythical. We don't have any knowledge of this. We don't have any memory of this experience. In the field of need, this type of experience was beyond us, full embodiment. It's only at the level of demand and desire that we start getting anything like consciousness and memory and the like. But I think this is what Lacan is getting at on page 700. A certain jouissance has to be given up. That's the jouissance that comes with being a subject of pure need, when you can cry and expect that your needs are going to be met. This process of castration means that that experience has to be given up. But if you stick with it and continue along this pathway, the law of desire, you get back to jouissance again. And I want to emphasize this because what I'd like to suggest for those of you that attended my summer lectures on the subversion of the subject essay, and for those of you that have seen those, if you haven't, let me know. They're online. I'm happy to share a link with you. One of the things we talk about is that up topmost arc of the law of desire, which is, I would argue, the topmost arc in the graph of desire on page four, the arrow that points from castration back to jouissance. If you were looking for a place for J2, I would put it at the very top of the graph of desire. We'll start there next time. We'll talk more about it. I realize also that that case study on page 188 and 189 is not one that we got to discuss tonight. 
So we're also going to have to put a bookmark in that one. But let's end with this rather wild reading of the table on 174 or 175 and let it percolate for a couple of weeks. Thanks for listening to Lectures on the Con. Stay tuned for more episodes soon. A big shout out to the artist Jerry Paper for our podcast theme music. <laughs>